electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. Today, yet another tech name going private this morning as Toma Bravo buys Coupa in this all-cash deal and shares surge on that news. We're going to discuss that in a minute. Plus, Wall Street getting bullish into the new year. More on some of the top picks we're getting from Netflix to Robinhood names that the street is betting on. First, though, some econ data just crossing the tape, and we'll get to Steve Leisman with it. Steve? Yeah, good morning, Carl. Some improvement in the Federal Reserve's uh, inflation expectations uh, gauge. The New York Fed out with a consumer expectation survey showing that one-year inflation expectations fell the most on record for this series. It goes back to 2013. They are down by 0.7% to 5.2%. That is still high but it's the lowest measure for the one-year-ahead expectations uh, since August 2021. Here are the full suite of expectations. Uh, that one-year still high at 5.2, but down 7 tenths. The three-year down a tenth of 3%. That was uh, uh, up near 4% uh, in August of 2021. The five-year down near the Fed's target. That's what they uh, focused the most on, 2.3% down a tenth. One other good inflationary bit of news, expected earnings growth declined 0.2% to 2.8%. Guys, this is one of the things the Fed watches closely. So a bit of good news here on the inflation front. All right, Steve Leisman, thank you. Uh, we're going to start our feed today on Tech Check with Coupa surging on news. The company has signed an all-cash deal with Toma Bravo to go private for 81 bucks a share. Now, you'll recall we were just talking a couple days ago about Toma Bravo raising a big buyout fund, wasting no time putting that and more to work. It's been Coupa has been one of many pandemic darlings taking a beating in the markets this year. Shares did trade at more than 160 bucks a share back in January. Now as investors pivot their focus from growth to profitability, given the volatile backdrop for tech, it's a tough environment. But that said, today's news a reminder, there's some innovation, potentially value in some of these smaller names. I'll also say Coupa is in the cost management business, watching helping companies watch their bottom lines. You know, if you're trying to take a broader view, perhaps this is cautious for the macro going forward that they, you know, went ahead and did this deal. But that said, since November, they've been sort of getting shopped around. Uh, I did get a chance to get Rob Bernstein, um, the founder and CEO of Coupa, on the phone just a few minutes ago. Um, he told me there was unanimous uh, board agreement to engage after that P.E. interest was reported. They talked to a lot of people. He said, in his opinion, hey, they really did right by their stockholders getting that $81 price. He said, we took every penny off the table. Uh, at the same time, he said the business is resilient. The community around Coupa is strong. So this isn't an issue with Coupa itself, D, uh, he was saying, but really just a decision uh, to do what he could for the shareholders mm -hmm. in, in this environment. 
That's interesting. He said it was unanimous. They wrung every penny out from it because, remember, it was only last week when the biggest shareholder, HMI Capital, said that they wanted 95 bucks a share minimum. So obviously they came down from that somewhat $81 a share. though is still a massive premium to where we've been over the last few months, but it is a lot lower than where Coupa was at its peak. Take a look at these Tomo Bravo acquisitions because this firm is paying up for these deals. Um, done some of the largest deals this year, Carl, at some of the highest valuations. SailPoint and Anaplan, that was 13.3 times and 12.8 times NTM revenue multiple, uh, respectively. Coupa's on the higher end also, 8.4 times based on street consensus. The median over the last two years has been post and pre-COVID has been seven times. So Tomo Bravo, we know it just very successfully raised a lot of money to do more of these, but they are paying up. And I heard your conversation, Carl, with Kramer earlier this morning. He thinks maybe too much. Yeah, uh, interesting. Uh, you know, Morgan Stanley does a screen, John, of other names that might fit this kind of profile, uh, EV of $5 billion or so, a heavy subscription mix that leads to names like PagerDuty and HashiCorp and uh, C3AI. We'll be watching those. Yes. Yeah, I mean, everybody's an accountant when the economy's tough. You know, I don't remember many people shouting about, you know, overpaying when it was Salesforce, <laughs> right, uh, buying Slack. And, and that hasn't worked out so great, the, the reporting says. But, you know, if you, let's take 23 off the table. Who knows what's going to happen in 2023, you know, uh, but 24 and beyond. Mm. If the technology's good, is there potential for growth there? Are companies concerned about managing the bottom line, managing costs? Are they watching yeah. what they can do in supply chain to be efficient? Absolutely, over the past couple of years. We'll see if Toma Bravo can help Coupa get it figured out. Well, that's what makes Coupa such an interesting acquisition right now, this moment for the economy. So far, though, take a look at some of the other targets. They've been cybersecurity and back office, because to Carl's point, what are private equity funds looking for right now? Uh, they're looking for sticky revenue, so highest renewal rates, longer-term contracts, a large base of enterprise, bigger enterprise customers, switching costs, high margins. So there are, there is um, a section of enterprise software that fits into here. Carl, you named a few. We even asked Tom Sewell last week of C3AI. So yeah. where do you want to be attractive? Remember that? We, he's switching from that subscription model to a consumption-based model, which you would think makes them actually less attractive for this kind of deal if that's what they were looking for. Yeah. I also love Dee's point, John, about uh, Toma Bravo and the fear among some that uh, that part of the uh, fundraising spaces running on a dry powder. Certainly this new fund would argue otherwise. I think it does. You know, and I've had some conversations with Vista over the last few months. They're not slowing down either. So as public market investors get more skittish about these companies that are younger, that, that, that are not uh, making profits necessarily or, or throwing off tons of cash, but have good technology, hey, private equity is still in there. So, you know, your public market investor, you, you can't really bet that a particular company is going to get taken out. I mean, who knows? That's like playing roulette. But it's really a time where if you understand the technology and if you look at the results, you can think about how long am I willing to stick it out with certain companies? How cheap have they gotten? Yeah. There could be some value. And, so, and, and some argue, I think it was B of A over the weekend, arguing that some of the 
best business creation and innovation takes place when maybe conditions are not ideal. Hey, that's why Brett Taylor is going back to the entrepreneurial <laughs> yes, game. It's exactly. a good time. Exactly. So as companies like Toma Bravo uh, scoop up some of these tech firms, our next guest sees unprofitable companies feeling the squeeze, likely struggling to capture these low interest loans and keep the business running. Joining us this morning, Destination Wealth Management founder and CEO, Michael Yoshikami. Michael, expand on that uh, and, and give us your view as to whether or not some of these deals at least imply there's someone seeing value in some things. Well, first of all, someone is seeing value, um, especially if you look at where the share price was um, in your previous discussion and where they're being taken out now. I found it really interesting that the conversation uh, that the CEO said they took every every bit of dollars off the table. Um, I, I ju it just makes me wonder a little bit when it was twice the price that it currently was taken <laughs> out. So I think yeah. that perhaps that shows that tech CEOs are getting more realistic as well. Right. Um, we mentioned in the intro here your view that there's going to be uh, some squeeze, especially uh, as people try to uh, finance uh, future operations. Yeah. How's that going to play out? Who, who do you think is the most vulnerable? Uh, well, I, well, first of all, what's playing out is a lot of these companies were driven essentially by super cheap money. I mean, if you go out and get fixed income rates at 2%, that gives you a tremendous amount of money to finance. Um, you know, from a uh, general standpoint on the tech business, if a company if a company does not have um, earnings, if a company does not have strong strong cash flow, and there is uncertainty about this company, I just think they're going to get punished by investors. If you look at even the companies that have tremendous earnings uh, and tremendous cash flow, they're getting punished by investors. So I just think it's time to be very cautious on more what I call speculative tech. Yeah, but Michael, th thread the needle for me on cautious here, because on the one hand, we've got investors who two years ago were just throwing caution to the wind, buying things at all kinds of prices. You don't have to go back two years, can just go back 12 months. But then on the other, you've got private equity that's seeing value in some of these, and you know their game plan is to you know, hold tight for a couple of years and bring these things public again. So to what extent can the retail investor think like uh, a private equity investor if the time horizon is more than three to six months? And how should the retail investment uh, investor go about that? Well, I, th I think uh, it's a really good question. I think what's really important here is to understand that private equity and venture capital expects to fail 80% of the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're really going to make their money on their home run. So, what I what I what I'm suggesting is, if you're an investor, if you have a hundred dollars and you put a hundred bucks into five different companies and four fail and one is spectacular, can you live with that? And hopefully, you pick one of the in, one of the companies that's going to uh, make up for the other losses. So, I think what's key here is is certainty or predictability and. Uh, you could certainly be like the private equity VC, but I don't know how many viewers out there are going to buy five stocks, have four of them blow up and be one great and still be happy. Yeah. Maybe not everybody. Right. That's a that more difficult like proposition. like VC than private equity. Yeah. Okay. Well, then if you look at the private equity space, maybe is there a trade here for the retail investor, the average investor? For arbitrage, I mean, if you're Morgan Stanley puts out this screener of what to look for, they give you names. Could you look for some of these, you know, between one ten billion dollar software companies that could be targets if you see how active Tomo Bravo and others have been in the space this year? Uh, yeah, you can do that. But of course, what you're really asking me is what company is going to be taken out next? And nobody yeah. knows that. Uh, and so 
Um, I, I think it's helpful to watch where the institutional investors are putting money, particularly um, um, if they're buying at a 50 percent in uh, reduction in price than they had, um, you know, 12 months ago. Um, so I think that certainly is telling. In terms of specific trades, it's 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 just hard to say. I think it's it doesn't really follow how we invest money, which is is we can't take the pain of four blowups and one success. Most of the people we work with as a private um, wealth manager can't take that kind of pain. They want more certainty. And there's plenty of tech names right now that are trading at a, a pretty good pretty good discount from where they were. Uh, that I don't think you need to go out on the edge unless you're a private equity type of investor. Yeah, we'll be talking about that, uh, where software fits in, in the appetite for risk in technology right. uh, in, the, in the months ahead. Michael, appreciate it very much. We'll talk again soon. Hey, thanks, Carl. Well, John may be looking to 2024, but 2023, right around the corner. So where should you be putting your money? Julia Borston joins us now with some of the street's top media picks. Julia. Well, Dia, a number of analysts are flagging entertainment and media stocks. Cowan naming Take-Two a top 2023 pick, reiterating Outperform, saying it remains a high-quality vehicle to invest in what we expect to be above GDP growth in video gaming over the next decade. Morgan Stanley naming Comcast, that's CNBC's parent company, its top pick in the cable and satellite sector, saying, quote, while we see 23 as a challenging year for growth, driven by peacock losses at NBCU and elevated Sky Sports costs due to World Cup timing, we see a path towards healthy acceleration in 2024. And two bullish notes out on Disney this morning. Morgan Stanley reiterating overweight, saying cost opportunities at the media business and momentum at the parks should allow Disney to deliver on its guidance for the next fiscal year. While Evercore with an outperform, saying CEO Bob Iger repairing relationships with creatives will put Disney on a stronger footing for the long term. But they do warn that they don't see many easy opportunities to dramatically change the direct-to-consumer cost base in the medium term. Meanwhile, Cowan also naming Netflix its top large cap pick going into next year, upping its price target to $405, saying the streaming giant's new ad tier and paid sharing solution will drive growth in 2023. John? All right, Julia, thanks. Um, let's dive deeper into that Netflix pick with the analyst behind the call, Cowan's John Blackledge. John, uh, given what's happening in the market and the shift that Netflix is taking toward advertising, how much certainty is there about how that's actually going to play out? Uh, yeah, I, John, um, thanks for having me on. I, I think it'll be good. I mean, we, we highlighted two key monetization levers uh, for the company next year. One is the ad tier. It rolled out in November. Uh, we think it'll drive accelerating uh, member net ads in 2023. We now forecast 8 million uh, ad tier members ending 23, rising to 43 million by 28. And we view Netflix as the best re recession play uh, in our internet coverage universe. Uh, just given if macro conditions worse, worsen, you have this ad tier available uh, for value um, conscious consumer. And the other, the other area uh, is the paid sharing solution um, that they're gonna roll out in 23. We think that'll boost revenue per member, um, just depending on how, how many they convert of the 100 million uh, global uh, paid sharers. Per our recent survey data, uh, we, we, ha we had the paid sharing solution uh, driving potentially 5% upside to UCAN revenue. Um, so they have multiple uh, potential uh, revenue uh, drivers uh, uh, next year. But how long does Netflix continue to get to operate by a different set of rules 
from other media companies. Does it still get to be its own category of kind of tech company where you know, Disney has to worry about profitability in streaming? Netflix can, can more do its thing and, and uh, kind of ride on the promise of the new ad revenue. Its, it's valuation is going to get hit. Yeah, I mean, and John, there, uh, we, the other positive thing for Netflix is we have free cash flow uh, ramping to almost $3 billion uh, next year. Uh, up almost 60 percent as profits rise and um, their cash content spend will be flattish. So, you know, Netflix is the global uh, uh, leader in streaming, uh, and uh, and so this new ad tier is going to be helpful, and the paid paid sharing, as as I said, is going to be helpful to drive to drive top line and also and also margins as we get into uh, into next year. John, good morning. How many subscriptions do you think that consumers are really going to be willing to pay for? What does that mean for a consolidation and content spend in the year ahead? Yeah, I mean, I, it, you know, you if you're Netflix, um, it, it's it, it, you know, it's 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 good to be Netflix just because of their their depth of their, their depth of content and also um, they they led in minutes uh, viewed by a wide margin versus Disney Plus and Prime Video. Uh, in the U.S. in this in this last TV season, so they're definitely there. And then you probably have um, Prime Video and Disney Plus. Uh, and and for Netflix, rolling out this new ad tier at six ninety nine, uh, it's uh, it's well timed, I think, as we as we head into next year with a potential uh, t- uh, tougher macro uh, situation for the consumer. Hey, John, uh, I've seen some desk notes saying, "Wow, it's really seeming like TikTok could see an outright ban." But your note about what happens if that happens. Uh, is pretty interesting and, and moves that conversation forward. Are you putting any odds on that, or are you just looking at what ifs? Yeah, well, well my colleague uh, Paul Gallant um, from Collins Washington Research Group has the odds at 40% of a potential ban, so I, I leave that to him. The note that we, we did a collaborative note last week on it, and uh, in our survey data, we asked if TikTok were, were banned, you know, who would, who would benefit? Uh, and uh, uh, it looks like Meta, uh, Instagram Reels would be the biggest beneficiary, and then YouTube Shorts, uh, and Snap really uh, wouldn't benefit it at all. So we were just looking at who would benefit if, if in fact, it were shut down next year. And and Meta, and particularly the, in the younger demos, um, uh, Meta's uh, Instagram Reels would would be the biggest beneficiary. A lot of time, a lot of attention, potentially a lot of revenue get freed up there. John Blackledge, thank you. Thank you. Still to come, crypto and focus ahead of a big hearing for FTX on the Hill tomorrow. But regulators, they may be taking aim at another exchange as well. And it's even bigger than FTX. We'll discuss that next. Tech Check is just getting started. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could, would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
Regulators are circling the crypto world this week. Binance now in focus with Reuters reporting that the DOJ is weighing charges against executives, including CEO CZ, as it investigates if the world's largest crypto exchange engaged in money laundering and criminal sanctions violations. Binance replied to the report, saying the publication, quote, has it wrong and stood by their law enforcement team. Meanwhile, investors may be on a crypto run. Nearly $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin has left centralized exchanges in November, marking the largest ever monthly outflow, according to Crypto Compare. And all of this as FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried is set to testify in front of the House Financial Services Committee tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern. Let's bring in our own Kate Rooney to discuss. Um, as always, Kate, so much to get to. But in terms of SBF, I feel like it's been SBF overload. He's on like a Twitter spaces or some kind of interview several times a day. What could we potentially get from him tomorrow? And it'll be interesting because it'll be lawmakers asking the questions. Will we hear anything differently? That is the question. And what will we hear that's different from the hours of testimony that he's really given already in media interviews? One thing uh, from legal experts that I'm talking to, the bar is just higher. This is the first time we're going to hear from Sam Bankman-Fried under oath, so he can really say what he wants during Twitter spaces and interviews, there is now the risk of perjury. He's talking to Congress members who have really wanted answers from him in a, a different way that a journalist might. He has donated to a lot of big names in Washington. He's spent time on Capitol Hill. He's testified in front of Congress in the capacity of what was at the time an expert witness and really the credible face of this industry, that image is now completely shattered. Company going through bankruptcy. He now is no longer the spokesperson or the CEO, as John Ray has said. And speaking of John Ray, we also hear from the current CEO. So it'll be an interesting juxtaposition between John Ray, the gentleman who was in charge of restructuring Enron and called this the worst bankruptcy and the messiest mm -hmm. he's seen in his 40-year career with Sam Bankman-Fried, who's got to answer to how we got here under oath. Yeah, that's it's a very key point, Kate. He will be under oath, so it'll be interesting to see if those answers and his strategy differs. Um, I want to ask you about this Binance headline this morning um, that the DOJ is looking or regulators are looking at potential money laundering. Uh, sanctions violations. But those, Kate, are kind of the old crypto issues that we are so used to that are kind of the standard. The th issues that are in focus now is commingling funds and um, proof of reserves, which we still, by the way, don't have from CZ. But it really feels like he's kind of on the back foot these days. Um, where are we in terms of what we want to hear from CZ and Binance and kind of worries about this exchange, which is much larger than FTX. Yeah, and so now that FTX has gone under, Binance controls about 75% of global volume. So they are the one that regulators and investors are looking to uh, really for to have some, some credibility, to have uh, a solid exchange out there that has proof of reserves. They put out a document earlier last week that was supposed to show reserves, and there's some questions uh, right now, from, from those in the industry, uh, on how you can actually value proof of reserves, what's mm -hmm. legitimate, what can you trust? So trust is really one of the big themes here uh, that people want to see from Binance. They've also got the issue, like you mentioned, of anti-money laundering that they're dealing with. They put out a statement saying, essentially, we've worked with law enforcement, we've responded to almost 50,000 cases here, and trying to make the case, which was very different from what FTX said, that we've hired almost 6,000 people in law enforcement and uh, trying to comply with some of these global regulations. And they've really tried to tout the team that they've built and the hiring they've done, whereas FTX at the time, you know, really talked about this lean team that they had, which is now looking like part of the issue. Mm -hmm. But Binance is the one to watch and the reserves are a huge question here. People wanna see 
if you are an exchange that you've got the money one-to-one -to, -one to back it up and there's been record outflows like you mentioned in the beginning there yeah. any of these exchanges if you're somebody who's not an active trader you've, you've seen it at a record level at this point that people are looking to take their cryptocurrency store it offline and have it in a place where they feel like they've got control over it regardless of what happens to one of these exchanges Right, but Kate, even proof of reserves isn't really a perfectly transparent metric either, right? Because it just is a snapshot at one point in time, and it doesn't even tell you if those reserves are levered, which is really the problem that FTX got into. Proof of reserves might have helped, but it doesn't tell the whole story. Yeah, there's worries about cherry picking, about showing a certain snapshot, like you said, of their balance sheet. And uh, it's been an issue. I think it, it all comes down to trust, which has been eroded with what happened to FTX. But even proof of reserves... It, the, the idea that you wouldn't have a big four auditor looking at this, there, it seems like there needs to be more done with whether it's stable coins or Binance or any of these centralized exchanges mm -hmm. to make sure that if you say you've, you're taking customer assets, you're holding those one to one, you're not holding those in liquid assets. And I think you're spot on there that even if you show something that is technically a proof of reserve, there are always going forward going to be questions appropriately on mm -hmm. where those are and can you see them in real time. Yeah. And no real financial audit. Kate Rooney, thanks. Meantime, Tesla's down more than 40% in the past three months. Is it investors rethinking Elon Musk or something even bigger? We'll talk about that after a short break. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Checking in on things about half past the hour here. Some decent green arrows to start a very busy week. Obviously, a lot's headed our way over the next several sessions, including central banks, eco data, and some high-profile earnings. Let's get a news update in the meantime with Contessa Brewer. Hey, Contessa. Hi there, Carl. It's Merger Monday. Three significant buyouts in the news here. You already mentioned Coupa Software getting bought by Thoma Bravo. There's also Amgen acquiring Horizon Therapeutics in an all-cash deal worth about $26 billion. Horizon shares are now up about 15%. The drug maker develops treatments for rare autoimmune and severe inflammatory diseases. A grill maker Weber is getting taken private for $2.3 billion. Private equity firm BDT Capital Partners is paying $8.05 a share. Weber stock is up 23% today, but still down nearly 40% this year. And Florida lawmakers are holding a special legislative session to try and tackle the state's troubled property insurance market. Bills have been proposed to ease big jumps in the cost of coverage and make it easier for insurers to actually find reinsurance. If you want to know more about Florida's special insurance hell, you can find that in my story on CNBC.com, Deirdre. Special insurance hell. Sounds yes. interesting. Contessa, thank you. Sure. Let's turn now to Tesla shares taking a plunge over the last few months as investors continue to watch CEO Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. The billionaire pulling no punches at the helm of the social media company, making headlines after going after White House COVID chief Anthony Fauci, amongst others, on the platform this weekend. So, what is the read through here for investors? Stock is down another 4% today. Let's bring in former Tesla board member Steve Wesley for a closer look. Wesley still holds Tesla shares in his personal portfolio. 
Uh, Steve, you say that he is overstretched financially and personally. So when and how does this get better for Tesla shareholders? Does he eventually have to give up the reins to that company or does something get resolved at Twitter somehow? Well, look, something's got to give, but uh, the, the short answer is Elon is stretched. He's dealing with an implosion at Facebook. There are rumors about a CEO change at Tesla. And look, he's managing five companies. Who wouldn't be a little overstretched? But, well, the bears have been winning. Tesla down over 50% since February alone. Short sellers making $11.5 billion. If you look at the numbers and you just put the politics aside, Tesla this year will grow from $53.6 billion uh, in 2021 to a number close to 83, 84 billion this year. That's 55% revenue growth, 45% growth in vehicles. They're doing pretty darn well. But the real kicker is Tesla is posting 16% net margins while GM and Ford are posting five and 6% uh, relatively. So they have a lot of runway, a lot to like if you look at the numbers. And I think especially after the downdraft, they're gonna be looking at a good 2023. Yeah, so Steve, there's a lot to like about those numbers. And for now, at least, it still dominates the EV market. But looking forward at a time when competition is coming online, is this really the time for him to be this distracted, this stretched? <laughs> well, the short answer is no. Focus is a key thing. And what he's got to realize is he has a permanent place in history for revolutionizing the global auto industry. He has almost single-handedly moved the world into an electric revolution in vehicles, which is good for the planet and good for the share price. But managing five companies at once is tough. All of the uh, uh, things going on at Twitter are not helpful. I'm hoping he'll stay focused on making great cars, put the political intrigue beside. There's competition going in at a historic level. Volkswagen and the Chinese in particular are really going to stretch Tesla, and Tesla shareholders need every bit of his attention to help make sure that the company is successful with the Cybertruck rollout, bringing new products to market next year. Steve, it, it seems to me, from, from where I sit, that Elon Musk is getting farther and farther away from that advice. Um, you know, he, I'll mention he just got booed at a Dave Chappelle show in San Francisco, I think, last night. And that's only interesting to me because Dave Chappelle's crowd is a free speech crowd, right? I mean, if you're still going to yeah. Dave Chappelle shows after everything... And Elon Musk thinks that he's leaning into the free speech message, message, but the fact that he'd be booed for minutes on end there might suggest that he's miscalculating even, you know, his brand uh, strength among his core audience. Does that mean that there's some risk eventually to how many Teslas he can sell, no matter how good the car is? Look, I think there's no getting away from that. One of the things that Tesla's done just about better than anybody is created one of the most powerful brands in the world. They are the upstart competitor, the ones that took on GM and Ford and the Toyota and proved them wrong. Now, as he moves further and further into politics, I think it's hurting him and the brand. I hope he gets back to focusing on great vehicles. He's doing that better than anyone. And this is the key time, because one of the things you didn't talk about is we're heading toward what is, for many, the most important smackdown in the global transportation industry, and that is who owns the short-haul trucking market. As you know, Ford F-150, biggest selling vehicle in America for over 40 years, electric or gas. But now Tesla's come on with a Cybertruck with a extraordinary 1.2 million unit backlog. 
if they're able to launch that in the scale that I think they will be in 2023, you'll start to see the first larger numbers come out in Q3, I believe. That is a game changer. That's why he's brought Tom Zhu in, the mastermind manufacturing genius from China. And think about this for a minute. The China facility in Shanghai producing 40% of all Tesla vehicles today. This is the guy who got the plant up and running in 13 months, 10 million square feet facility. If he can do what he did in the Austin plant, uh, what he did in Shanghai, that'll be a game changer for Tesla. We'll see. I hope he dials the politics down. Yeah, well, China is a great point, uh, especially since we're watching other mega cap companies like Apple try to diversify their supply chain. If, in fact, there's a, a market a degradation in U.S.-China relations, how much vulnerability does Tesla carry, do you think? Right now? A lot. Again, 40% of their vehicles coming from China. If there's any sort of hiccup in U.S.-China relations, Tesla is in a world of hurt. That's why they're moving quickly, looking at other markets you've seen in the press. Canada, South Korea, uh, Indonesia. I think it's highly likely Tesla will break ground in at least one, if not two of those places. So they want to diversify like everybody else in the world. It's going to be fascinating. One thing you didn't touch on is Tesla's also posting record numbers in their energy business. It's easy to forget yeah. because everybody's talking about the cars, but they're moving full on into the utility sector. So keep an eye on that as well. You should expect it, to see big numbers. It's true. Still relatively small, though, but pretty astounding numbers there. Steve, you used to be on the Tesla board. Do you still talk to Elon Musk? Do you tell him to dial down the politics? Do you think that other board members are telling him to do so? I I, I do not talk to Elon. Uh, He's done pretty darn well the last uh, decade. But things have clearly turned in the last six months. Again, short sellers making $11.5 billion. That has never happened before. I hope uh, Tesla will respond accordingly. Stay focused on making great vehicles. Does he, yeah, does he listen to his board, though? Do you think he's getting that feedback from the current board members? Well, it's, it's fascinating. I think Elon has succeeded by doing whatever the heck he thought was the best yeah. thing, and it's worked out pretty well. This is the first chapter where things might be looking a little different. We'll see how things go between the board and Mr. Musk. I promise mm-hmm. if there's one thing it will never be, it's boring. I think you're right on that. I'd agree there. Steve, Wesley, thank you very much for being with us. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. BMO now calling 2023 the year of free cash flow, and they're naming Palo Alto Networks a top pick because of that. More on that after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back to Tech Check. Let's get a gut check on Palo Alto Networks. BMO calling the stock a top pick with a price target of $225 per share. The firm highlighting the continued need for cybersecurity solutions. And they say they believe Palo Alto has a leading portfolio that is well positioned to gain share. Take a look at shares up about one and a half percent now at 161. BMO also likes Palo Alto's valuation and strong free cash flow and shares have held up this year. The stock is down just 13 percent this year compared to the Nasdaq's near 30% drop. Deirdre? Yeah, Julia, stand out also within the cybersecurity space. The cyber ETF down 23% year to date. Meanwhile, crypto is the least popular investment option for Americans, according to a new CNBC survey, with prices cut in half or more this year. Well, there's a lot like that, but there's also a huge hearing on the Hill tomorrow. So who can blame them? Don't miss those details next. 
Looking for a pulse on investor sentiment when it comes to crypto? CNBC is releasing results from our first ever CNBC Make It Your Money survey. And when it comes to the space, investors are cautious, uh, finding that space much riskier versus a year ago. Six out of 10 Americans surveyed rated the risk of investing in crypto as high. That's a 15-point jump from August of last year. That said, investor exposure to the volatile market remains pretty low, according to survey results. Just 10% of respondents say they're invested in crypto at all, with millennials leading that charge ahead of other generations. For more on those results, you can register and join our CNBC Make It Your Money virtual live stream tomorrow, 12 p.m. Eastern time, where we'll give you some actionable and concrete information to find out how you can earn more while possibly working less. Sign me up, John. I think I'm going to work more, Carl, (laughs) especially in the next year, but we'll see. Still to come, why one analyst is betting on Robinhood here, plus Take a look at the top gainers on the NASDAQ 100. There they are, DocuSign Atlassian, CGen, Datadog, Splunk. Tech checks back in two. Let's turn to FinTech Mizuho outlining their top picks for 2023 in a new note this morning, bullish on names like Robinhood, Toast, and Fiserv. Joining us now, the analyst behind that call, Mizuho's Dan Dolove. Dan, good to see you. Uh, you like Hood. You say the company matured in the second half of this year, but did it diversify? How much revenue is it still getting from payment for order flow? Is it more successful these days in cross-selling or upselling its customers? It's a great question. I think that um, the payment for order flow, the, the key issue there was that it was on the table that it's going to go away. And now with Gensler basically telling us it's not going away, that risk is is over. So, you know, payment for order flow is really about like, you know, low double digit percent of revenue. It's not that big of a deal in the greater scheme of things. And now we kind of have a, a clear 2023 knowing that this is here to stay. So that's a huge positive catalyst, I would say. And there's other things that make us super excited about Robinhood, too. What are those things? Um, I know so, that Robinhood has been trying to offer different financial products. It feels like every kind of fintech, though, is trying to be that one-stop shop. So what's going to make Robinhood the most appealing next year? Yes, it's a great one. Everyone wants to be the next fintech, but there's only one Robinhood. And it's a true singularity if you think about it. Like This is the name that comes to mind every time you think about sort of you know, young people trading, et cetera. It's always Robinhood. So I would just name a few catalysts, right, for 2023. They're getting into into retirement, right, IRA. They're offering that product. That's a huge TAM out there for people to actually try to start to, get, you know, give their money for retirement money to Robinhood. That's unprecedented. They, I think they're going to disrupt this market. That's a huge catalyst. Um, they're doing really well on uh, trading. November trends have been very strong. Uh, people were worried about profitability, They've turned like $47 million in positive EBITDA in the third quarter. So the cost cutting are working. And, and I met with Vlad a few weeks ago, and it, ter- it turns out the sentiment in the company is very strong, and it's kind of onward and upward from here. So I think all the moons and the stars are in line for a great 2023 for Robinhood. Well, Dan, what I don't get is, aside from the millennials and younger who think they want to day trade, or at least thought they wanted to day trade things, including crypto, What's the longer case growth uh, thesis for Robinhood versus Vanguard or Fidelity or E-Trade or, you know, many of the names out there? As investors get more cautious and stop being traders, is that potentially bad for them versus those other names? I actually think, it, and this is like the key debate here, right? I think you're, you're kind of hitting the nail on the head. They, that what they're going to do, and this is, again, in my view, they're going to focus on this cohort and they're going to go as deep as possible on this cohort. So the bull case here is getting those younger people and having them do everything possible 
getting the allure of Robinhood, having to do as much as they want, or as much as they can with Robinhood. And remember, while you don't have to go to like the, the boomers, you could still stay in that cohort and get a bigger share of wallet. You can go internationally into that cohort. So there's still a lot of growth that can come from penetrating and growing the ARPU in that specific cohort. So I don't think there is necessary, comp necessary competition from the fidelities of the world or Schwab's of the world at this juncture. Now, some of your other top picks are a lot more, um, I, in, in my view, I don't want to call them conservative exactly, but Toast is a bit more of a, a B2B play, of course, Fiserv, et cetera, more based on business transactions and the volume of those. In a way, they've been benefiting from inflation because they're taking a percentage. Uh, can you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, sure. So Toast is like the ultimate share gainer here, right? Like they're, you know, they're growing restaurants at a five, six thousand clip per quarter. And what you're seeing with Toast is like the, the bull case on Toast is that we've done proprietary survey that shows you that restaurants that take payroll, which is less than 50 percent, actually get an extra one to two extra software products that comes in at a hundred percent incremental margin which means that you're, everyone thinks or consensus thinks that they're not going to be profitable next year. We actually have them turn profitable next year because of that software. So it's excellent execution, best-in-class share gain, gaining share from like the Heartlands, global payments of the world, and uh, basically taking that and selling software. F, you know, Pfizer, I would like to say that's a, a you know, super value, deep value topic. Clover is executing just as good as uh, Toast, but it's not getting the multiple. So they're also a net share gainer from the ecosystem. And I think Pfizer needs to get that multiple in 2023. It's a deep value uh, share gainer that basically performs like the other uh, growth stocks. So those two we like. And then just a word on FIS. FIS requires a little bit of a corporate action, right? So if there's, uh, if they, they, they need to actually break up the businesses, and that would extract a lot of value. So that one is probably the cheapest in the group with the most upside from potential corporate action. And I think the odds of it are, are definitely more than you know, 20, 25%. Hey, Dan, I'm curious, um, you know, Journal's got a piece up this morning about Americans going to Europe to shop, uh, given the, the currencies. And I wonder how you're thinking about the possibility of the dollar really becoming more accommodative. Does that help because of currency or does it uh, do something to cross-border shopping in the light of this, this story? I think it's a great thing for uh, for the networks, right? So, you know, we're more bullish on MasterCard than we're for Visa. Cross-border comes in at a 10x, as most people don't know that, 10 times the, the take rate or the yield in regular transaction. So if Americans are going to Europe to shop, uh, Visa and MasterCard actually make 10, they make 10 more, you know, 10 times more yield on that transaction. So, but I would view this more of a trade than an investment. I think the headwinds for the networks, especially for Visa in terms of Fed now, which is coming live later this year, um, and, um, and basically saturation of cash to card are, are, are the bigger kind of 23, 24 themes, uh, while the trend of you know, cross-border is going to be kind of a nice bump. I think it's a crowded trade, and I think most of the buy side is already there. Dan, always great to get your insights. Thanks for being with us. Dan Delef, Mizuho. <laughs> Microsoft notching the top spot when it comes to management, according to a new report. We're going to find out why and talk about who came in second when Tech Check is back in a minute. According to daysoftheyear.com, today is National Poinsettia Day and Gingerbread House Day, but perhaps a little more important for investors, it's a significant market anniversary. 42 years ago, Apple went public at 22, 
Today, trading at $142 and change. Remember, stock has split five times since December 12th, 1980. Since then, stock's up more than 145,000 percent. I don't know, John, of, of all the IPO anniversaries we watch, this is a big one. It's an important one to remember. About 22 years ago, I started covering Apple as a beat reporter, and the company was on its knees. I mean, people didn't know. Steve Jobs hadn't committed to sticking around. So, you know, you got to measure companies over a longer time horizon, D, for sure. Good thing to keep in mind. What a journey it's been, though, for you covering that company. You said 22 years, John. One more thing before we go, kind of related. Microsoft, though, of course, big Apple rival, topping the list when it comes to the best managed companies of 2022. The Drucker Institute's ranking focused on five key performance areas, customer satisfaction, employee engagement and development, innovation, social responsibility, financial strength. This is Microsoft's third year in a row at the top. Other big tech names, though, guys, they did see some slippage. Amazon falling from number two to number eight after customer satisfaction came in lower year over year. Um, they break them into those different categories. It's interesting because some of the big tech companies are at the top of the list in terms of financial performance. But when it comes to customer satisfaction, uh, they have definitely slipped. That, it's, it's kind of, I'm, I want to dig into this a little bit because Microsoft is in the top ten in every category, I mean, employee engagement, innovation, social responsibility, financial strength, except for customer satisfaction, where they ranked mm -hmm. lower than 500th. That's weird. I mean, people like their Xboxes. You know, I'm not saying I'm, I'm doing cartwheels over, over Microsoft Word, but I like it. That's a low. It works. Yeah. Uh, pretty fascinating. Obviously, uh, in the news constantly today, even with this headline about the London Stock Exchange uh, stake. And we're going to get some other uh, high-profile names during the course of the week. little home building with Lennar, but uh, Adobe and Oracle, John, are going to be huge ones to watch amid the big macro week we've got. And the acquisition environment in software, for sure, which Adobe hopes keeps going. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 